vegetarian restaurants, I think before I really opened mine, were considered lifestyle restaurants. Uh, and we weren't. And that's the first thing we said when we opened is that I don't care about your health. <laughs> I don't care about your politics or your religion or the environment or animal rights. All those are great, but that's not the focus of this restaurant. The focus of this restaurant is the food. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm senior editor Anna Huesel, and I'm here with editor-in-chief Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, we have Amanda Cohen. She's a cookbook author and chef and owner of New York City's vegetable-centric restaurant Dirt Candy. We also have Deb Perlman answering one of our readers' questions. But Anna, what did you and Amanda talk about? Dirt Candy has been a real New York institution for probably about a decade now. But about a year ago, last fall, they really started to switch things up and move from an a la carte menu to a set tasting menu. That's so rad. So tell me, what is on this tasting menu? It sounds bonkers. There's kind of like a flambe eggplant as dessert. There's a dish where you actually get to grill your own sugar snap peas at the table. I've always thought Amanda's cooking was so was so intelligent. I mean, she was doing Korean fried broccoli well before Korean food was booming, and and she was doing these cool like make your own burrito or make your own taco using vegetable components. It was amazing. Yeah, really clever. She has a lot of dishes that have a sense of humor to them too. Here's Anna talking with Amanda Cohen. Welcome to the Taste Podcast, Amanda Cohen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Amanda Cohen is the chef at Dirt Candy, which is a vegetable restaurant in here in New York. Amanda, I heard a story that you worked at a bowling alley <laughs> frying chicken wings leading up to your career at Dirt Candy. I never worked at a bowling alley, so I'm not quite sure where that rumor started, although I do like to bowl. Uh... I For a couple of years, I worked at a sort of fancy upscale diner in Spanish Harlem, and I was very well known there for my chicken wings. So I was the master of the fryer. Did you have to cook a lot of meat in your career leading up to running your own restaurant? Uh, I went back and forth from sort of a regular restaurant or from regular restaurants to uh, like in the sort of vegetarian world restaurants. And so, yeah, I cooked quite a bit of meat, but I never really tasted it. And I'm surprised that people let me get away with that. Were there techniques or just flavors that you kind of learned from that process? Yeah, definitely. I think it was really important. And I actually tell all my cooks who work in the restaurant that they should go and uh, work in more sort of like mainstream restaurants because you do learn different flavors and like working the grill and searing and all the like sauces that go on meat. It's just it's a really broadens sort of your knowledge versus just working in a vegetarian restaurant, which can have a very narrow focus. Uh, how long ago did you open Dirt Candy? Uh, we opened 10 years ago. So Dirt Candy was kind of a pioneer in the ways that people thought about cooking vegetables. Have you seen a lot of restaurants kind of doing like knockoffs of early Dirt Candy dishes or tributes to them? Uh, I haven't seen a lot of dishes that are knockoffs, but I definitely think the concept of Dirt Candy has been knocked off quite a bit and... Uh, but they still, it's funny because we still really focus on putting the vegetable in the center of the plate and making a meal out of one vegetable. And what I find is that people are trying to knock us off, but they don't know quite how to do it. So you're still getting a lot of sides on one plate. 
what's kind of like the boiled down version of people trying to knock it? Like, what does that look like in practice? Um, I don't know. I just, you know, I go out to these vegetable, supposedly vegetable forward restaurants. And to me, it just looks like a big, like hot salad. <laughs> you have like kind of the wedding catering vegetable plate, right. like a couple grilled zucchini slices. Yeah, some eggplant, maybe a little bit of couscous. A puree of some kind. Red pepper. Always red pepper. <laughs> Always red pepper. Yeah, red, roasted red peppers seem like they're a kind of the vegetarian accessory of like the mid-90s. Totally. And yet it still appears on plates. <laughs> uh, so dirt candy used to be in the old superiority burger space, right. right, on East 9th Street. Do you miss that teeny tiny space? Um, I miss the space a little. It was very intimate, and we had a very close staff, and I knew all my customers, but it was really hard to work in it, so no. It's much nicer having uh, actual space and a grown-up restaurant with um, big tables and regular-sized chairs and not a tiny bathroom that you can barely fit yourself into, and... Uh, we spent a lot of time organizing because we had so little space and storage was at a, such a premium that probably 50% of our day was just trying to figure out where we were going to put stuff. Do you ever see yourself kind of moving in the direction of a superiority burger and trying out something casual like that? Uh, no, I really, at, at the moment, I'm focusing on the restaurant and uh, I feel like, you know, we have a real problem in the restaurant industry and with customers, and we're starting to lose the focus on fine dining. And I want to put the focus back on that. So Superiority Burger is great, and lots of the fast casual restaurants are great, but they're kind of taking away from the dining experience. So I hope there's a shift back at some point. And you recently switched to a tasting menu. Yes. From having an a la carte experience. Yeah. What has that been like, and what made you decide to switch over? Uh, we switched for a number of different reasons. Uh, one, we found we already had a tasting menu when we were doing the a la carte, and we found that our customers really enjoyed the tasting menu more. They didn't want to decide. Um, the Unfortunately, the a la carte menu allowed people to sort of not order enough food uh, because people in New York, I think, dine out so much, and they probably have breakfast out and lunch out. People were coming in and ordering one or two dishes, and I wasn't making the check average. I had to. So the tasting menu sort of guarantees that uh, people will spend enough money. Uh, and I wanted a chance to be more creative. And the a la carte menu sort of hemmed us in a lot. And we can do tiny little dishes or large format dishes on the tasting menu. We can sort of do whatever we want, um, which is a lot gives us a lot more freedom. And you don't have people saying, like, this is one spear of asparagus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it costs X amount of money. Yeah, and exactly. They'll be like, oh, it's one spear of asparagus, but it's part of a 10-course tasting menu, so that's okay. I can forgive it. Um, yeah, that's really hard to explain to people, the cost of running a restaurant and the cost of food, and it just wasn't working for us with the a la carte. And I really want to, just to go back to my other statement, I really want to bring fine dining back. I want people to come out to eat like they are adults and have, you know, uh, an aperitif at the beginning of the meal and, you know, a bottle of wine and a tasting menu and sit there and have a cup of coffee and, you know, then have a digestif at the end and, you know, make it a real experience. And sort of there's this real hustle in, in New York where it's like, got to go. I'm going to be out in like 45 minutes. Why is this dinner taking an hour and 10 minutes? And, you know, I, I want one plate of food and maybe half a drink and I'm out and I want to, you know, put us back at the table and let people sit for a while. 
We had Naomi Pomeroy on the podcast a few weeks ago, and she talked about how she's just felt over the last 10 years of her career, people kind of speeding up and just how much harder it is to get people in Portland to kind of slow down and spend a couple hours on a meal. Do you think New York is moving in that direction too? I mean, you kind of went from the sped up dining experience to a slowed down experience. Yeah, it's really, it is really hard to get people to slow down. We have a 10 course tasting menu and um, usually at hour two, people are like, oh, this is taking so long. And we're like, well, we did tell you it was 10 courses. Like I can't, you eat faster. (laughs) Like it's not us, you know. I mean, it is us because we want you to sit there for two and a half hours and three hours and have this uh, really sort of luxurious dining experience. And people do fight it all the time. You'll see in our reviews, they'll be like, oh, my God, the meal was amazing, but we were there for two and a half hours. I'm like, right, but it was 10 courses. Like, I can't do it faster. And and you chose it. Um, You know, and I was just in Europe, and it's really nice. They're like, come when you want, sit for as long as you want on a table. We're not going to turn it. And we're really losing that aspect of dining. It's true. I've noticed a lot of New York tasting menus, not going to name names, but a lot of them have like kind of gimmicky little tricks and little moments of entertainment throughout the tasting menu. Did you feel any obligation to do that, to kind of like have some theatrics as part of it? Yeah. Yeah, because I want it to be a show. I think that people want to – I'm asking them to spend a lot of money. Uh, And I think – People like the theatrics of dining, like the people who really get us. They want the show. They don't want to sort of like dine and dash. <laughs> they want to sit down. They want to be entertained. Um, they want to feel like it's not just food. It's an entire experience. Absolutely. What's an example of something that you've been able to do? Uh, you know, we end our meal with an eggplant foster. And, you know, there's they go off all night in the dining room and there's fire and it's really unexpected at the restaurant. Uh, so I think something like that. That's really cool. What's an example of something that's so small on the tasting menu that you couldn't have gotten away with serving it? Oh, we have our Peking peas. So uh, we have a, it's sort of a play on Peking duck and it has all the traditional accompaniments, uh, except obviously it's all vegetables. Uh, but we have these tiny little grills and we ask the guests to grill their own peas but you only get four, or sugar snap peas, sorry. You only, each person only gets two sugar snap peas. I couldn't charge for that. How do I charge for two sugar snap peas? But part of it is the the show of it. And, you know, we bring out this tiny little grill, and, you know, you grill one pea at a, or one sugar snap pea at a time. And, and the dish actually does cost a lot of money for us to make in the kitchen because it's a lot of labor that goes into it. But when you see it, it's like, oh, Right. I can't charge somebody $20 for that. It's one sugar snappy. Right. But if you're only having one of them, it kind of tastes different than right. if you're having like a bowl of them. Exactly. exactly. You kind of think about how it tastes differently. Yeah. Hard to get the customers to understand that sometimes. But yes, it does. And so you have this really quick moment with the sugar snappy, which hopefully lingers and you think about it later and you haven't gotten sort of like uh, palate fatigue with it. Yeah. You've written a lot about how much harder it is to be sort of taken seriously and get coverage as a female chef. Is that true of chefs who cook mostly with vegetables or vegetarian chefs? I mean, do you think it's harder to get review coverage? Yeah, I definitely think that there's a – it's a – 
double-edged sword that we're sort of facing, or I'm facing. I'm a woman, and I cook vegetables. So it's sort of like I'm Ginger Rogers. I'm dancing backwards <laughs> in high heels. Um, much harder to be her than Fred Astaire. The vegetable, I mean, maybe not so much anymore, but certainly 10 years ago, you know, vegetables weren't taken very seriously, and uh, I was pretty dismissed what I was doing. Uh, people obviously are trying to do more with vegetables these days. And so we are getting taken a little bit more seriously. But I do think that as a woman cooking vegetables, we I am definitely overlooked. And I think that if a male chef was running my restaurant, it would be a very different story. How differently were people thinking about vegetable forward cooking and vegetarian cooking 10 years ago? I mean, was it sort of considered like a health thing or how were reviewers especially thinking about it? I think that we were sort of boxed in as being healthy and sort of just having a cause. You know, is there something about the environment or your health? Vegetarian restaurants, I think before I really opened mine, were considered lifestyle restaurants. And we weren't. And that's the first thing we said when we opened was that I don't care about your health. I don't care about your politics or your religion or the environment or animal rights. All those are great, but that's not the focus of this restaurant. The focus of this restaurant is the food. Um, and I think that's the first time sort of a vegetarian restaurant or a vegetable-forward restaurant really came out with that statement. Uh, and I, I do think that Dirt Candy really started the vegetable-forward movement. And um, it took a while for people to sort of understand that or understand what we were all about. I think of Dirt Candy as being a restaurant, even if it's not sort of a lifestyle restaurant, a restaurant with a certain ethos. Would you say that's true? And what's kind of like the ethos of the The only ethos we have is that we like to make vegetables taste good. So that's really the only thing we come to the restaurant, the only idea we have every day. Um, Just like any other sort of normal omnivore restaurant uh, whose ethos is to like make the best food possible. That's what we do. We just make it out of vegetables. Uh, Your first cookbook was a comic book. Yes. How did that come about? And do you think you'll do another one? I probably don't have another cookbook in me for a couple of years. Uh, This one's now about six years old or so, maybe. I can't quite remember. Um, (laughs) It took a long time to write it. Uh, and draw it, and that was all uh, Ryan. Um, You know, I had been asked to do a cookbook, and I wasn't really ready. They kept asking us sort of in the first year or so of Dirt Candy. I was like, we're not ready. We don't have enough recipes. We don't have enough of an identity. And then sort of by, like, year two, we were like, all right, well, maybe we can start really starting to think about this. But the one thing I knew was that I didn't want to do just sort of your standard cookbook because I actually don't think people cook out of cookbooks anymore. I think they're really pretty coffee table books, and there's nothing wrong with that. But most people actually cook it off the Internet. Mm -hmm. And I was like, so we don't have to do a traditional cookbook because that's not what cookbooks are used for anymore. Um, And I really wanted a cookbook that was going to represent sort of little dirt candy and sort of the high energy and the craziness and – there's something about running a tiny restaurant that's very different than running a big restaurant. More crazy things seem to happen every day. Uh, or maybe you just notice it more. Uh, and I was having a discussion with my husband. And, you know, we couldn't – we were trying to figure out what we could do. And I was like, I don't want the standard photography and, you know, that sort of food porn that you see in all the uh, cookbooks. And he said, well, why don't we do a graphic novel cookbook? And we had both sort of read mangas and there's a definitely a style of um, 
cookbook, uh, comic book in Japan. And I was like, yeah, actually, we should do that. Definitely. And it just it all fell into place after that. But there are recipes in the book, right? Yeah, there's definitely recipes in the book, and they're drawn out, and we tried to make it as uh, visually uh, appealing with the recipes and make it as easy, user-friendly as possible. So I think sometimes you read a recipe and you look at a picture and you're like, I don't know how they got from here to there, Uh, even with the best, most well-written cookbooks. Um, So we tried to draw out as much as possible so you could really understand the techniques uh, behind the final picture. What would be your dream next book if you do wind up building yourself up in the next three years to write another one? I would definitely do another graphic novel cookbook. Uh, I think we have a lot more of a story to tell, and I think it's a great vehicle for it. What would be the story that you're telling in this second volume, and how different is it from the first one? Um, Were you in the tiny space on East 9th Street when you wrote the first one? Okay. Yeah. Um, Well, I think sort of the trials and tribulations of opening a second, bigger restaurant. Uh, But also, we've learned a lot more. So while we told a lot of the story in the first cookbook, I think in the second one, we know a lot more now about vegetables. And uh, we've spent 10 years really sort of uh, um, studying them and uh, trying to learn as much about them as possible. And, And I think we have a whole sort of encyclopedia of knowledge that we didn't when we wrote the first one. What are some of the things that you've learned or like just new techniques that you've come up with? Yeah, new techniques, um, even like cutting a vegetable differently uh, makes such a difference in how you react to it. Uh, And I think there's like chapters we could write on, you know, if you shave a cauliflower, if you ball a cauliflower, or if you chop it up roughly, there's just, and people don't necessarily understand how important it is the shape of the food you're eating. Absolutely. What do you think of cauliflower rice since we're on this topic? <laughs> That's a tough one. <laughs> um, I, it's, it's weird. <laughs> I, the, actually, I think the weirdest thing about it is people buy it. And they don't make it themselves. Right. Because it's just, if you just have a box grater yeah. and a head of cauliflower, cauliflower, you can make it yourself instead of actually buying it. But we're so good in the States at just buying everything. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call it rice. And I'm not opposed to people calling things uh, other names. I just think that's a it has nothing to do with rice. Yeah. And it's very texturally different than rice. Um, but, you know, more power to people who like it. Uh, so you've written a lot about kind of like how to shift restaurant coverage more towards restaurateurs who are female. Right. And it's something that we see in awards every year in the industry. It's something we see in like the review coverage in the New York Times and other national newspapers. What are some things that diners can do and like how can diners kind of educate themselves about the restaurants they're going to? Um. It's hard because by doing it, you sort of break down that fourth wall between customers and restaurants. But I think we have to do that at the moment. Um, the fourth wall being kind of like you you can't just experience the food right, on its own. Right. Yeah. We're, we're sort of uh, – you can, you can no, no longer dine out and not know what's happening in the back of the kitchen. So I think you do have to research the restaurants that you're going to. And, you know, when you type the name into Google, it can't just be – the first, you know, you can't just go to their website. I think you do need to see the articles that are written about them and 
decide with your dollars if that's where you want to spend your money. Do you wish that your diners could just experience your food without knowing anything about you or your story? Yes, absolutely. I think that uh, it sort of makes for a, a more, not enjoyable experience, but you, you get a more private experience at the, the restaurant. You know, if I go see a Broadway show, I don't need to know this, like, you know, if the lead actress is getting a divorce or not. Like, that doesn't help my enjoyment of the show. Um, but in a restaurant, I really do want to know now what their practices are. And, you know, I think we have to incorporate that into our dining experience without making it seem too overwhelming. You know, you don't want to be like, oh, this is a delicious cauliflower steak and this restaurant doesn't have any tipping, so I'm going to enjoy it even more. I just want people to be like, oh, this is a delicious like, cauliflower steak. But not right now. Right now we have to really research restaurants. And do you think it's the reviewer's responsibility also to kind of dig a little bit into that personal background behind the food? Yeah, absolutely. Um, whether reviewers want to believe it or not or want to accept the responsibility for it, they shape restaurant culture. And if you have that much power, you have to use it responsibly. And so, yes, I don't think reviewers should go to a restaurant where they know that something bad has happened in it. Um, and I think that, you know, at the end of the day, your legacy is about shaping restaurant culture. So don't you want to, like, support the good restaurants, the places that you know that are working really hard to make the restaurant industry a better place? In having eaten a delicious steak somewhere and reviewed it, um, and been like, oh, well, I'm, you know, I wrote a really good review about this restaurant and its steak. Is that the legacy you want to leave? Or is the legacy, hey, I went to this restaurant that was doing really good things for refugees and I shaped the restaurant industry by promoting that restaurant. And now there's five more of these restaurants because customers were really excited about going to eat at it. And telling the stories that haven't been yeah. told before. Exactly. Too. It's boring, I think, if we only tell the same story over and over again. It is. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. Here's Deb Perlman answering a question from a reader. Deb Perlman, we got a question for you. What is the best dessert to bring to a party that will make people stop and go, mmm? And that's my uh, CNC Music Factory reference. <laughs> Unquestionably, you have to make my brown butter rice crispy treats. Brown butter rice crispy treats. I can talk. I, the thing is that people are going to see them on a plate, and if they don't know about them before, it's like their first time at a party with Deb Perlman. They're not going to necessarily know or with anyone else who's made them but because they just look like rice crispy treats, and you're like, now nah, pass. But they are just, they go so well with cocktails because they're salty and they're nutty and they're sweet. They're not just like a straight cupcake, which can be a little bit much with a drink, you know? And they're easy to handle, too. There's no crumbs. You just, like, eat it all, and they kind of stick together. I they're perfect. And you can get all the ingredients at a bodega. They're probably better from there where they have more, like, marshmallow turnover. Very important to consider. We have this obsession with brown butter these days. I feel like it's a brown butter everything. There's probably a brown butter latte out there somewhere. Oh, my God. 
actually, okay, so now I'm thinking, because the best way, one of these, like, cool brown butter tricks, I think this is a Cook's Illustrated thing, but you can um, add extra milk powder to it to make it, like, extra brown buttery so there's more milk salads to brown to get that flavor. So although the idea of putting butter in a latte is a little bit, like, not appealing to me, I feel like if you could focus on the dairy side, mm-hmm, I'd do it. I would, I would drink it. Definitely pro brown butter here at, at Taste. I love how, like, the French, like, you know, they put it on, like, a lovely skate recipe and we're like, cookies, crackers, yeah. everything. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much, Deb. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>